Welcome to the TA Disruptors podcast, where I get to speak to some incredible thought leaders and TA disruptors in recruitment about the biggest issues and challenges in talent acquisition. Talent acquisition is changing faster than it ever has before. We now live in a world of Gen AI, where those TA leaders who survive and thrive will be the ones who adapt and challenge the status quo. To talk about these issues and more, I'm very excited to welcome my old friend, fellow entrepreneur and recruiting mega-influencer, the one and only Hung Lee. Now, many of you will know Hung from his brilliant weekly newsletter, Recruiting Brain Food, which was started six years or so ago, and I seem to remember uh, was, was more of a, an, a marketing experiment for your previous business. And, but has now grown to over 100,000, I think, you know, regular uh, followers and expanding into podcasts, webinars and, and many other things. So there are few people as well connected into the global heartbeat of talent acquisition as yourself. Welcome, Hung, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Robert. Great to excited to be having a chat with you on this. So let's start on a topic that you've been quite vocal about, and that is that Gen AI is going to really overwhelm recruiters. And it's not just that we're seeing candidates using Gen AI to improve cover letters and CVs. There's actually a a bigger challenge that they're going to face from, from some of the new apps out there. Can you perhaps just share you know some of the things that you you feel that recruiters are, are really going to have to get their minds around and their processes to, to cover yeah uh, so the first thing to, to recognize is that um, when generative AI first emerged into the mainstream 12 months or so ago uh, some of the very early experiments that we saw from software developers were actually kind of candidate orientated hacks to get through a recruitment process. So developers are obviously thinking with a developer, uh, with a candidate mindset, even back then, like how do you get through an interview process? And they produce these wonderful experiments, which um, uh, were at the time and and still, still are kind of like experimental demonstrations of the technology. Um, but I think it was a very early signal flare mm-hmm. uh, to tell you that actually this technology will be used by candidates uh, to improve their prospects of getting a job. And, and as you rightly say, now we have sort of situations where, of course, we have candidate usage of uh, generic tools like ChatGBT to create better copy on uh, application forms, uh, uh, resumes, CVs, etc. But you also have um, kind of mass supply type technology, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is selling the idea that actually um, here you can automate your applicant your applicant flow, flow from a candidate perspective, um, and you can just set up uh, your criteria, and the uh, the bot will be able to co- uh, apply for jobs on your behalf. Yeah, I saw one um, on that one that you you apply while you sleep. 
Yeah, that's the that's the mantra. Mass supply, thousands of applications out there. One click to do that. Um, and uh, the main difference between this and previous mass supply type technology, because you know, if you have a list of emails, you can you can send a big mail merge. Yeah. Difference here is that um, what the technology is allowing candidates to do is to personalize um, these applications. Right. So it's mass supply, um, personalized mass supply um, at scale. And my argument is. Our recruitment processes have been designed for a non-AI-enabled candidate. Yes. Um, and are we uh, are, are, have we created systems that can absorb um, AI-enabled uh, candidates? I would suggest strongly that no, we haven't. Yes, and I, I think it's a very interesting point because I, I've used the term that there's a tsunami of applications that are coming is coming around the corner. For, for many recruiters and uh, I was speaking to one CEO yesterday of, a, of an AI company who put out a job advert for a data scientist and typically in the past they'd had you know 20 or 30 applications for it's quite obviously quite a specialized role but they uh, recently when they'd done that had 1,400 applications for one role and most of which he said were were not very good and, and clearly AI generated but that that's going to be a big problem for recruiters yeah, if they haven't got the processes designed for that. You can't sit through 1,400 applications and manually and work through. So, yeah, have they? What's your community saying about this? Are people aware that this is coming, or do you think that that they're still sort of burying their their head in the sand a bit? I think the awareness is growing, um, and I think the, uh, the the recruitment industry is kind of wrestling with the. It's, it's still a topic of debate as to where uh, the use of artificial intelligence from the candidate side is either permissible or not. You know, what yes. does it actually mean? Um, so that's still an ongoing kind of discourse that we're having, um, and I think we haven't resolved that, and it's going to take us some time to to get to a consensus. Um, but I think in the meantime, as we're wrestling with the philosophical side of it, uh, the, the practical uh, sort of uh, um, uh, situation will probably force our hand because what will happen is that we will see uh, an increase of the number of applications per role for every role. Mm. Um, and it will become increasingly difficult for a human recruiter to give all of those applicants due due service um, and in fact it'd be difficult for, for those to identify you know a, a, a serious application compared to one that was supported heavily by AI yes. um, if indeed that's something that the the, the, uh, the employer cares about so I think the philosophical debate is probably not going to be resolved uh, it'll, but our hand will be forced uh, on a practical side because if this tsunami does occur um, then that's going to force some really quick decisions that we might need to make that aren't necessarily backed by any great philosophy other than we can't handle this. Yes. Uh, we've got to do something about it. Um, yeah, and that will, that will prompt action. I think that's really interesting the, that we've, we've got two challenges for TA leaders really on this. One is what, what is our position about Gen AI and the recruitment process? And the other is just this purely practical one that... You know, we've we've got to find better ways to to differentiate candidates. Um, I, I'm going to come back to the ethical one and what's right or wrong in that in a second. But just on the practical point, 
which I think is is going to initially force people's hands on this. You you've said a couple of times that one of the challenges around is that that in the short term. TA leaders may actually be forced to switch off advertising the way because they're going to the tsunami is going to be so overwhelming that actually that, that they don't want to automatically push out adverts into uh, into the reeds and the, the the job boards on that. Is that is that really what you think is going to you know be a, a major impact if if people aren't thinking about this in advance? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the, the reason why a recruiter will put, push an advert out is because it's the quickest way to the candidates, right? Um, yeah. You know, we want to optimize our t- our ability uh, or the amount of time spent to acquire this person that's going to work for this company. Um, but if that time suddenly becomes a lot more than we expect, then we're going to look at other means. Um, so to use your example of the, your friend who posted an advert mm. now has a thousand applications, I'm pretty confident they've switched that job off um, because the next day it will be another thousand and the day yeah. after that maybe another thousand. And there's obviously a limit um, to, 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 to what is the, the, the right size for, 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 the, uh, for any role. Um, so in effect, early termination of jobs is a way of kind of putting the, the, the advertising off. Now, let's say this individual was to hire again for that team. I would suggest that, yes, he, he or she would hesitate to post that job again because they're going to think we can't handle this applicant flow. Yes. Um, so, and good thing is recruiters have multiple ways to ID candidates. Um, posting adverts isn't the only way to do it. Um, uh, uh, but I think that it will become increasingly ineffective um, in a world where AI enablement becomes more widespread. Um, I don't think anybody disputes the fact that the usage of AI will continue to grow. Um, and maybe, I mean, was it Microsoft um, rolled out Copilot two, 24 hours ago? Yes. Um, so that's instantly several, probably probably a couple billion people that are suddenly AI-enabled, right? Yes. Um, uh, now, um, that's going to have a huge educational impact on all of those people who previously not touched ChatGPT and like this. Suddenly, they're using Microsoft tools that actually have natively embedded GPTs. Um, uh, probably we're going to stop typing. Right? Yes. It's going to yes. get to that point where yes. we uh, the, the the generated output will will soon overtake um, human only output. Let's say, um, and that obviously applies to job applications as as well as any other type of digital work. So yes. we're, we're rapidly getting there, um, and you know we need to find uh, develop ways uh, to have a kind of a, 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 a recruitment and assessment system that is ready for AI-enabled candidates as a default. Yeah, let's let's just explore that little bit about, you know, what the recruitment process is is going to need to, to change and, and adapt. One of the things, if we, you know, areas just to start off on, uh, going back to everybody's using Gen AI now, so recruiters are going to be using it. You know, Microsoft is making it super easy for everybody to do it, as are many of the other HR tech applications. One of the implications around that, and it links a little bit to the to the sourcing piece, is what will the role of talent acquisition managers, personnel be? Because there's going to be a real de-skilling of the things that they used to do, which was to be really going out and, and sourcing people. But now if you're overwhelmed with applications, actually there's 
there's going to be a different set of skills and capabilities that you want from talent acquisition. So could you share, you know, some of your, your thoughts around that? Yeah. So, so firstly, any kind of um, technology innovation is an act of de-skilling. Um, uh, and we shouldn't be horrified at this. It's simple. This is what technology is there to do. It's there to basically make it more accessible to more people um, without having deep skills in order to do this one thing. Um, you know, I do not know how to, to, to create a fire, yeah. um, right? Um, but probably if I have a bunch of matches or a lighter, I can light something, that's great. Um, uh, that's probably a benefit to society that I, that I do not need. Uh, to know how uh, to, to start a fire. Yeah. Um, so similar to um, uh, the uh, this technology innovation will be a huge de-skilling um, uh, impact on the recruitment sector, um, but it will also require a reskilling in the sense that maybe the time that we have freed up need to be applied to other things that we need to to get more skillful on. Mm-hmm. That's not unusual for this industry. Um, uh, you know, for the older heads out there that were recruiting pre-internet. Um, uh, you know, the phone was the main sort of tool of, of choice if you're recruiting. Um, the best recruiters were great phone workers. Um, uh, internet comes along and, you know, that's a, the, the relevancy of, of the phone work goes down compared to being able to use the internet. Mm. This is a similar moment. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what skills um, kind of uh, uh, will, how, how the, 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 the kind of the core skills that we value in recruiters will be reshuffled. It could well be that sourcing which a lot of people think is over because, mm. oh, these systems are going to be able to just generate us these results. Um, and I think broadly that's correct. Uh, we'll, we'll have better, uh, how do we say, uh, low-skilled people will be better able to retrieve relevant information um, with uh, with uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that sourcing will go away, though, because it you can kind of look at it from a competitive advantage point of view. Um, if everyone is using the same AI to generate or, or retrieve these candidates, then perhaps the competitive advantage would be um, the people that know how to identify individuals that aren't regularly recommended for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a classic example here would be LinkedIn. Yes. LinkedIn is clearly going to try and move to a position where um, you can use natural language inputs to basically retrieve candidate profiles that are most relevant to your job. There may not even be that point where you do that uh, sort of uh, search or, or input yourself. It could just be matching with the with the job ad that you post in and straight away it will be able to say, oh, here, here are the 100 people that are most relevant across our entire system um, uh, relevant to this job. Uh, oh, we've already reached up <laughs> we've already reached out to them for you. Um, and then suddenly there's a huge component of so the recruiter's job might suddenly be, uh, you know, redundant. Um, yes. I don't need to search. I don't need to outreach. You know, the system is doing it all for me. Um, the however part of that is, is LinkedIn's recommendations accurate? Um, yes, that's what I was just going to, you know, you know, it clearly would be utopia for all of us that while we are asleep, that LinkedIn has found the right, you know, best roles for us. But it requires, uh, and I like what LinkedIn are doing around uh, skills and skills first hiring and, and starting to look at you know, some of your transferable skills rather than just pure experience. But it's got a long way to go. I think still uh, around that because some of the recommendations that I've seen 
are just way off and so so that's where again a recruiter is still going to need to come in and and work that search capability a bit if it is permit, permitted mm. like it, it could well be and this really is going to be interesting for us on the industry perspective because linkedin is obviously a hugely dominant tool for at least white collar recruiting mm-hmm. um and if they kind of go heavily down that recommendations route and that becomes the primary way in which they connect employers to job candidates um and they may kind of either neglect the search function or they may start like Pu- pu- pulling it back from people's ability to search it. Um, and there's already been some complaints that that's the case. Um, now, this may be an inadvertent outcome of their product direction, mm-hmm. um, uh, but it may well be it becomes extremely difficult to kind of not go through the front door that LinkedIn has opened for you. So LinkedIn will say, here's how you should find candidates. Here's the front door. You need to open it, and we're going to give you all you need. Um, but you know, a lot of technical recruiters like to kind of go ra- go up through the window, you know, yes. go around the back yes. and try and yes. do all those things. LinkedIn might decide to put the hard line and say you can't do that, and that's actually maybe breaching the terms of service to do yes. this. In which case, we have a different universe and probably not one that recruiters would find too welcome, because if suddenly LinkedIn becomes a fortress and you can't. Um, you know, a fine candidates without going through the doors they give you, mm-hmm. then you know um, it, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to do a lot of the recruitment work um, that um, re- recruiters are currently highly paid to do, which is yes. to you know extract difficult to find uh, uh, information. Yes, yeah, and I, I you know I, I like your your point about that as to you know what the the role of the recruiter is going to be. It's going to be some of it is going to be skilled in in how you do the searching still. Uh, other bits will be around analytics as well, and we're seeing a bit more, uh, certainly from from some of the discussions that I'm having, that a good recruiter skill is going to be on understanding a particular marketplace, a role, and, and what the availability of certain skills is there, and, and and sometimes having to think about how you broaden the talent pool, because if, if there aren't the right skills, then you have to do something a bit bit differently around that. But I, I now want to just sort of turn back to one of your, your earlier points about this just ethical piece about the use of Gen AI. And we had an interesting discussion last week uh, on this on the, on the webinar, and I, I feel that there are two camps at the moment on this. Camp number one is the use of Gen AI in recruitment is cheating and it's and they often do use that word and it's quite an emotive term to say to somebody that they're cheating by using gen ai when we're all using that tool like a calculator and then you've got those that are let's embrace it let's bring it on and think about how we educate people to use gen ai on this where you said we've still got to kind of figure that out, but where's where's your thinking and position on where this might end up between those two different camps? Yeah, no, I think it's even a spectrum. So most people uh, they, they they are uh, kind of uh, absolutists on either side, uh, and you know I, I welcome the clarity of the absolutists. I have mm-hmm. to say, um, uh, so um, I, I think for employers it's quite important to actually have a defined position on this. Because uh, it helps guide the behavior of your recruitment team and it helps you make assessments as to what is good or bad. Um, I would be, um, uh, I'm, I'm not 
sort of fixed in my view as to where this sits um, uh, because uh, there's a couple of things to think about. Um, so firstly, I think cheating, I think, could be defined pretty much if you're being deceptive. So for instance, if you are uh, promoting false information about your qualities or, or capabilities, for instance, um, or if you're uh, disguising certain facts about mm -hmm. yourself in, in, in some way, um, we, could, we could describe that as cheating. I think yes. most people would accept. Uh, but there's always a caveat and on a caveat. Like, is is me doing an AI-generated photo to make myself look better? Is that cheating? Mm -hmm. I'm certainly mm -hmm. disguising things, aren't I? Um, you know, I'm certainly covering up some blemishes in my face, etc. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, so, is that cheating? Um, question mark. I don't know. Um, you know, do we need absolute raw authenticity all the time? Society probably would collapse if we had that. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, we we kind of have to accept. Um, that there's a, there's a level of ambiguity in all communications which kind of make things work. Um, where that hard line is, cheat or not, I personally would be reluctant to draw that in, in, yes. bright light, in a bright line. But we're um, going to have to, I think we're going to, and I think it's interesting because there are a few organizations out there that have resisted making a call on that because it's quite grey on that. But interestingly, I had a conversation with Sarah Atkinson, who's chief executive of the Social Mobility Foundation, and she said one of the key things that she gets asked all the time from people from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds, uh, and I've heard the same actually from, from neurodivergent uh, applicants as well, that well, what's what's the secret to applying to this organisation that will you know, enable me to get through... Um, the, their, their recruitment process uh, in, in a way that doesn't disadvantage me. And clearly one of those things, if you're dyslexic or dyspraxic, using Gen AI to improve your uh, sort of submission on why you'd like to work that for that organisation would be a good thing. And And I wonder whether we can't put this off and that perhaps we can learn from the education sector on that. I mean, I, I don't know whether you, you saw, but UCAS, for example, have been quite explicit now and you can go onto their website to see this is good use of Gen AI and this is bad use of Gen AI. But I, I think we have to get to that clarity on there because otherwise nobody knows, is it... Am I cheating? Am I not cheating? I, I've, you know, it's it's not fair. I think if there are those people that see it as an aid, and it supports them, and they just don't know what the position of the employer is on that. Yeah, I think I think that, so. On the spectrum, um, I think because of all of these grey areas, the the most important thing that any employer can do is to is to just put invest some time to mm. to, to create a position on that spectrum. Um, and obviously, you know, if they're uh, sensible, they'll be able to absorb information and move move across that spectrum according to how, how, how they wish. Um, uh, but the, the wrong thing to do would be to not have any thought yes. on this um, because you're going to get to a point where your recruiters are not going to be able to interpret what is or is not cheating. So you make a very good point. There's certain people with uh, sort of uh, who are differently abled. Mm. Uh, I don't think anybody would have a problem with someone doing a spell checker um, for uh, someone who you know is dyslexic, for instance. Um, but will we have the same attitude 
um, to someone who, let's say, um, doesn't have uh, native language skills, but uses AI to produce native language level uh, communication. Um, uh, suddenly, a few people might then think that's not quite the same. Maybe that is something we need to think about, etc. And then you press a little bit further and say, what is the difference in this case? Um, and it's very hard to pin down what that difference might mm. be. Um, so we're, we're heading down sort of a, a, a road where the, the ways in which we assess someone's competence, um, do we do that without sort of uh, AI, so we strip them of any AI and try and assess them purely as a, as a human-only applicant, which some companies have made the decision to do, which, um, again, we, we had that webinar last week, EY, we're having that position for graduates. I respect that position, so long as they, and they communicated very clearly to the applicants that that was the way. Um, or do we accept that actually AI-enabled candidates is exactly what we want, because we're an AI-enabled company, um, uh, and we're going to either assess their competence with the tooling, mm -hmm. um, or we're going to find some other way in which we can assess them um, that would still, uh, you know, factor in the idea that we're going to be using AI in their work, um, and that would be part of our assessment. Yeah. Further philosophical point, though, um, it could well be that that the human qualities are less relevant now. I mean, are we now heading towards a position where actually this AI is going to do a lot of the work um, that we uh, uh, the output is all generally going to be AI. Therefore, we just need a human operator. You know, we don't really care about yeah. uh, the quality of the individual. Let's drop down the assessment altogether and just like bring them in. Um, so it, it kind of points us in directions that are really quite like uncomfortable ground. Um, yes. You know, what are we actually recruiting for? Um, are we recruiting for an operator of the AI? Um, or are we recruiting for a human being that we have some vision, might do something uh, currently for us as a business, but might grow with us in some other direction, in which case, how do we assess for that potential for growth? Absolutely. And I, I think you, you raise a really important point there that we as part of you know wrestling with all these challenges uh, that we've we've just gone through one of the other ones we have to think about is what are we going to expect the knowledge worker to do in a gen ai world and therefore we have to think about what we're measuring for when somebody's applying for a job and then how we measure it, because it needs to be different now. As you said, there's no point um, trying to assess somebody for their processing capability, their ability to read a piece of text and then interpret information from it, because actually Gen AI will do that really well. But what, what we do, I think, <coughs> start need to thinking about is uh, critical thinking skills, uh, creativity, curiosity, those uh, coachability, th those are things that I think are going to become more important around all of this. So that's, you know, one key element that I think organisations as part of this big redesign are going to need to think about. But just coming back to your, your point then is around how, how do we assess then if, if we are going to be inundated now and we can't cope with, with all the, the applications that are coming in we're not able to to really determine whether AI is being used or, or not being used, then we have to really think about what does that assessment piece look like? And I, you've, you've talked a bit about in the past uh, 
about there are three sort of options for people on this, deter, detect and design. Mm. Could you share a bit around, you know, your perspectives on on how how does that assessment piece yeah. need to be adapted? Yeah, so I think deter is a very clear position. You simply declare um, to applicants that you do not want them to use this and if they if they were discovered in doing so, invalidation of their application, etc. So, so some companies have gone down that route uh, and again, it just requires clarity uh, uh, on your policy um, and then clear communication. A, a detect is, you know, again, I, I, I saw um, uh, evidence of, of companies producing technology to do AI, sort of detection of AI-generated content. Um, that I think is is difficult to see as a, as a future, simply because I think you have to be infallible with it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can imagine that if someone is erroneously accused of using AI and it if discovered not to be the case, um, then that's obviously uh, a legal case. Yes. Um, and uh, that would just eliminate your your, your ability to use that technique. Um, it just to be too high risk. So I think most companies are probably going to go down. Let's try and redesign the recruitment process that is fit for this AI-enabled world. You're not going to stop the tsunami. Um, what you need to do is to create the, the, the right system that can absorb that tsunami and still be intact. Um, so what does this look like? Um, I think we'll probably end up deploying some AI at the front end to, mm-hmm. to handle the volume of applicants. Um, so, so we're going to get to the the AI speaks to AI kind of world faster than we thought we would. Um, but there's no reason why that's a bad thing. Um, that uh, you can imagine a situation where um, candidate would uh, sort of. Uh, uh, use a, 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 an agentic AI to send a bunch of applications out. Um, the employers will then respond with their own AIs to interrogate the AIs to, to just establish the basic levels of match. Does it make sense? And that interaction, I think, could happen very quickly. Um, uh, and uh, only when sort of conditions are satisfied either side do you then sort of get to the point where, you know, the human beings in either side will be notified to say, actually, there's enough here from... Uh, from AI agents mm. to tell us that maybe a human-to-human conversation needs needs to happen. So that may be one quick solution. Um, so all of the AI becomes front-loaded. Yes. Um, and then actually we both sides agree, you know, we're going to drop this and then have the human-to-human conversation, you know, pretty smoothly from there. So that's pro- one possible way to design it. Um, another way to design it is to kind of abandon the AI exposed elements of the recruiting process. So for instance, the application form is still quite a common thing, the mm-hmm. online application form. I think most of us can recognize that that's becoming meaningless yes. um, because it's simply a case of copying the question, pipe it into chat GBT and say, can you answer this um, You know, based on my background and optimize it to such an effect that it actually gets through this process. Yes. So. As, a, as an optimistic perspective, we could look at some of the more archaic um, types of uh, recruitment events that we put into a, into the, the assessment flow and start chopping them away. Application form might go, uh, cover letter's got to go, um, any sort of, um, uh, even the resume, uh, I think will still probably require a document purely for compliance reasons and to uh, uh, register a record onto a system, you know, there's going to be reasons why we're going to still collect the resume, but uh, it won't be kind of seriously scrutinized as the the, the, the key uh, uh, tool or, or the key yeah. artifact. 
Um, but then I can imagine there'll be some pre-application or so post-application screening again organized by AI. You can imagine it'll become pretty much a, a regular thing for an applicant uh, to interact with a, an AI um, before uh, going forward to any flow. And this will be asking questions. It will be maybe doing a, a test of some type, maybe getting involved in some assessment. Um, I think we'll all probably be, get through. Uh, that will probably be the, another way in which you could design uh, yes. an applicant process. Yeah, and I, 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 I think that's going to have to be where we end up because I worry about an, an AI talking to an AI because it just opens up the opportunity for manipulation. Uh, it opens up the opportunity for those with advantage to have better tools, more sophisticated tools. I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen is that ChatGPT4 um, significantly outperforms the free version, so the paywall version is better. And in, in any high-stakes situation, you, you, you're just going to have uh, an arms race between AI to AI and who can outsmart uh, that ultimately those with advantage win and those that don't lose. And so I, I very passionately believe actually that we, we do need to embrace AI, but we need to find ways of determining the human augmented piece in, in that application and that we've got to be very, very careful that we just don't go down a route where AI is doing the matching and we end up in some rather dystopian world where those with access to the best and specialist information you know, get, get the best matches and the best jobs. So I think that how we bring that human element into it is, is really important and we need to be able to do it at scale as well because that's that's the challenge. You can't, you know, one of the things that you've talked about, which I think is really interesting, is that we'll potentially end up with more face-to-face -face interviews now. We'll, we'll need to bring the human element back in. Uh, we can't just do it through through remote work. Uh, but that's, that's going to be, you know, if we're redesigning it to end up with more human interaction... That's good for the candidate. But again, we've, we just talked about the recruiters being overwhelmed, under-resourced. They're, they're not going to suddenly be able to go from eight interviews to find a single candidate to 80. No, no. And, and it will be a huge expense. Um, but I think it's the it, 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 we'll, we'll have to regress back to it, is the truth. Um, if we want to retain again it, it comes down a little bit to your hiring philosophy and your even your talent development philosophy um so i do anticipate um a bunch of companies who abandon assessment altogether um and simply say we're going to just hire anybody who turns up throw them onto an ai course um and make them ai enabled and then you know review it after a year um, and there'll be enough people in there that, that actually do succeed and you've just re eliminated your assessment costs completely. Um, then you'll have other, other companies that'll say, no, we want to put the barrier up front still, but we want to do so in such a way um, that um, you know, it's AI proofed. Um, and that's where you have to do the in-person interview, in-person in assessments. Um, and, uh, and that's going to you know, mean more, more work for recruiters. That's a good thing. Um, it will be a more human touch. That's potentially a good thing. Um, 
is it good for the candidates? That's a yes, no again. Like every question is a yes, no in this new world because the candidates say they want to have the human touch. This is true to an extent. Um, if the entire experience is completely or overly automated, then human mm. touch might be welcome. But if you're a candidate and you're suddenly confronted with just in-person assessments, that's the only thing you get, you're getting, then that's actually quite expensive in terms of time, quite expensive in terms of your turning up and stuff like this. Um, and that, again, that is also quite exclusionary in many respects. So for instance, um, a, a company holding an assessment center, they will have it on a certain location that the candidates have to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's gonna have an impact on who can afford to attend. Um, because if you're getting a train ticket um, from uh, a small regional town to you know London or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, that could cost you, that cost of that could be prohibitive uh, for certain people. Um, so again, we bring in, you can't avoid having this um, exclusionary um, world. Uh, yes. Even if you decided to abandon the technology, yes. um, so so yeah, I think it's it's something everyone needs to be conscious of, and whatever whatever you do, there will be significant flaws. I think, um, but like I say, the main thing is to have a policy and have some clarity as to yes. what the trade offs are. Yes, well, exactly, and I think that's the point of working out what the trade offs are, rather than um, being overwhelmed by the tsunami and then finding that the system's broken as opposed to making a conscious choice about the trade-offs. And I, and I think you can work through some of those trade-offs too. There's no reason why organisations couldn't pay Correct. for people to travel to assessment centres. Um, I, I just want to take you up on your point. I, I like something that started in the US about the sort of open hiring policy of you know maybe we start thinking about... Uh, who and how we we bring into the to the organisation and uh, as as you know I'm a huge fan of scrap the CV and looking at potential and this open hiring approach is really interesting of right anybody can apply and we'll literally just take the first twenty people that apply for it to some extent that's a bit like what we used to have for internship programs and what's been interesting for me is what started as a effectively an open hiring policy let's give people uh, a chance to see what the world of work looks like in in our organization we get a chance to see what they're like a sort of try before you buy sort of thing but the the internship now has become such a important way of entry into an organization that's become super competitive and you actually now look at the applications for internships and and i I just wonder whether whether you you think that maybe if we take assessment out of it it just becomes a little bit random then of okay that we've got 20 internships the first 60 people to apply will get an interview and from that we'll select 20 that's that's quite random of who are the first 60 and comes back to well who gets insider information it's about to be released so it's a bit like getting tickets to glastonbury or something you know who's who's going to be the first to hit the button on this and it doesn't necessarily you know give the openness which that policy was was hoping to achieve yeah i mean internships um uh, are well known to advantage the people that have essentially a very strong social environment and and kind of a uh a socio- it's a socio-economic mm. angle to this 
um, because if you, I think if you have a two-parent family, both of whom have gone to university, you're more likely to actually ever get an internship yes. because your parents will tell you to do that. Um, yeah. And you've got that education in-house in, 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 in your domestic space to say you need to you know, get the leg up on this very competitive marketplace. Different stories, single parent household, parent goes out, works all day because you, know, you, you really yeah. need to make every money. You don't have that input um, and you may actually be wandering into toward the world of work without any guidance um, uh, from uh, the, uh, the home. And that obviously then just embeds uh, this social stratification and it re reduces social mobility. Um, I would actually go radical on this. I think okay. state intervention. Um, I really think people should simply be allocated an internship at 16. Um, uh, you know, you are part of a, of a state system anyway. I mean, uh, uh, most people in the UK um, will be in education, organized to, you know, at various levels, but certainly by the state is driving what you should be doing. I see no reason why we couldn't extend that into the world of work and say, right, we're going to allocate you randomly to a company. Um, or here's 10 companies from which you can choose to yes. spend next three months of your summer um, and then just do it. Um, I think that will do a great deal to equalize access to opportunity going forward. Um, and it will equalize this kind of uh, uh, social advantage um, yes. that a lot of people have because, you know, their father can say, hey, get into yes. this hedge fund because, you know, that my, my, my junior is now the boss there. Yes. And then straight away that person gets into, you know, a, a career track that's going to be are hugely advantageous. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. I think why not continue with the advantage? You're going to look after your own, of course. Let's recognize that's a human reality. But I think the provisioning of a public system uh, that can help less privileged people get access to these opportunities would be a very good thing. I love that idea, Hung. I, you know, I, I put you forward for prime minister uh, <laughs> tomorrow. From that, I think it's dystopia would ensue day one. <laughs> but I, I think that's such an interesting idea. You know, we've we we come interestingly, you know, from from my uh, it was just before my my parents' generation of national service, and so it's it's not a wild idea that the state may come in and say, actually, I want you to do something that has a public service benefit, but also a benefit for you. But rather than shoving them in the army, which I don't think anybody really would would advocate for now, but actually, could we do it through some work experience would be a really interesting way to, to address some of these inequalities. We want to do it. Um, I think the state wants to do it, but basically it's been delegated down to mm. different departments and, you know, individual action. But uh, the problem with sort of giving the individuals the agency to do it, so to speak, is that you don't equalize the, the ability. The certain, in the, the certain groups will not have the ability to make that decision because they haven't been given the, uh, the education to do that. Um, it's not hard to imagine, you know. I mean, if you, if you go to a poorer place um, where... The, 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 uh, the home is not sort of a, a, a great environment for education, for instance, that individual will never have yes. the opportunities to, 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 to learn or they'll have to climb extremely difficult uh, sort of road uh, to even get to equivalence. Uh, we're talking about 15, 16 year old kid or whatever. That person has got so much potential as equal, uh, as much potential as anybody. Yes. Um, but you've literally cut that off because you haven't um, intervened when, you know, uh, as a state, I think you should. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love that idea. And I think it, it could be something that would sort of brought into, you know, an educational uh, part of um, the way that we, 
you know, support and give skills to our young people could be through work experiences as much as it is through other things. As always, Hung, it's been a fascinating conversation. You know, we've we've talked about some brilliant things. You've um, shared wonderfully about what you think some of the the challenges around the tsunami that's coming along, some of the key things that that, that people need to reflect and think about, and uh, some some really good perspectives on it. And as 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 I said at the beginning, as as one of the recruitment mega influencers. I, I hope at some point uh, that the politicians in this country might be listening to some of your your thoughts, not just recruiters, because you've, you've got some some great ideas beyond just how, how recruitment needs to improve, but also how we help our young people, which I, I think is, is is just as important. Thank you for a great discussion. Uh, look forward to to continuing uh, more of these uh, in, in in the coming year. Thanks for listening. If you found the insights in this episode valuable, don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. And if you have a moment, please do rate and review the podcast. Apparently, it helps more people like you find us.